Hey everybody, I'm Eric Torenberg, co-founder and partner Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive into topics relating to technology and business with some of the world's leading experts. This episode is about cryptocurrencies. It is with one of the most dynamic thinkers in the space, Balaji Surinvasan, founder of Earn.com, formerly 21, and partner at Andreessen Horowitz. We talk about how blockchain will change every industry, from journalism to healthcare. We talk about identity, we talk about China, and we talk about how cryptocurrencies will change society in ways we can't even comprehend today. All right, here's Paul. Graham has this essay, Jessica Livingston essay, sort of the sound of silence, what you can't say. And it sort of echoes this dilemma that as you get more successful, you have more to say, but then you also become a target. So you lose incentive to, you know, contribute to the conversation um, and discourse suffers as a result. What do you think about this? Um, I think going Satoshi is a more and more interesting idea and will be something that becomes more calm in the future that you know, Satoshi is the first pseudonymous billionaire, but he won't be the last. The way to think about that, I think, is the whole concept of a real name uh, is a social construct. Even the term real name is actually stealing a ton of bases. And uh, just to explain what I mean by that, if you go to South America, the folks there, their real names aren't actually, you know, Hernandez and Santiago and so on. Those are names that were imposed on them by, you know, Spanish colonists who, you know, came and, uh, you know, imposed those names. But even actually, if you go to Europe or what have you, the whole first name, last name paradigm, you know, people think of that as a real name as, it, as in other names are fake names. But it used to be that you use whatever name you wanted in whatever village you were going to, and you could reboot with a new name in a new village. Sort of like how on the internet, you know, you use this pseudonym on Reddit and this pseudonym on Twitter. And if you want to reveal all of your identity and give a single identity that links all these different accounts you can, or you can use a pseudonym here, another pseudonym there, and you can basically compartmentalize things. That's how it used to be. And in fact, in like European and Indian and Chinese culture, knowing the real name of something is to have power over it. So the very concept of a real name is really like a unique identifier. We can pull all this information on somebody. And uh, what was awesome about what Satoshi did is by using a pseudonym, um, he made sure that the discussion focused on the technology and the ideas he put out there and basically completely eliminated an entire class of, you know, ad hominem attacks, but more than just, you know, attacks against a person, uh, verbally, he eliminated a whole class of attacks on his life, liberty, and property. Simply by putting an idea out there, you know, he could have invited all kinds of reprisals, but uh, he was smart enough and he practiced impeccable operational security and those reprisals did not happen. What needs to happen for what you described to, to become mainstream? Part of what needs to happen is millions and millions of people need to onboard into and become comfortable with holding digital currency. And the reason for that is if you hold digital currency, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or an ERC-20-based token like, like what we're doing, then you have a private key where you have an incentive to keep it private. Namely, if it's revealed, then your digital currency is gone. That actually solves a big problem in cryptography, which is you know the public key distribution problem. Now, your public key is something which is intimately related to the wallet, and you know you've kept it private. You know it's valuable. You know it exists because you don't want to lose your 500 bucks or whatever it is. And now, you can actually have a valuable pseudonym. That is to say, it's not just a cast-off. You're signing messages from a digital currency address that contains $1,000 uh, or the equivalent, so people know that you're not a joker, that it's not a you know total cast-off that has one cent to the name of it. But they also don't know exactly who you are. And so it's a good and new intermediate between anonymity or a low-value pseudonym versus your full real name. One way of thinking about it is if your bank account uh, is your stored wealth, your real name is your stored reputation. And what digital currency will unlock is the ability to have intermediates where you don't need to wager your entire bank account or your entire real name on something. You can just wager the reputation of a pseudonym on something. 
let's play this out for a second. Because Mark and others have sort of comprehensive identities now, they have a big following. Like in a new world, would Mark have one you know, identity to talk about non-controversial stuff that he wants to push forward and another identity to like really sort of engage the debates that you know he couldn't under that? Like what would that look like? Uh, yeah, obviously the downside is you lose the platform that you've built your whole life. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, it's it's surprising how quickly you can ascend to the top of something if you're a relatively you know hardworking person. It's it's definitely a cost. The cost is that you can't deploy the ideas in the platform you built. Yeah. The benefit is that you ward off this entire you know set of reprisals, and the ideas are just engaged in their own merits. Twenty one is a social network, B two B social network. How do you think about identity in the construct of your social network uh, and reconcile it with with what we've just been talking about? Yeah, very good question. So I am a pragmatic ideologue <laughs> in the sense yeah. <laughs> that I have long-term goals, but I'm also a pragmatist in the short and medium and even, frankly, long-term. Um, and so uh, where I look at it is I'm willing to make a bunch of short-term sacrifices in order to uh, get, hopefully, tens of millions of people into digital currency and then you know to hundreds of millions and so on if we're very fortunate. What that means is that in the bootstrapping phase – uh, we do ask people, at least initially, for a lot of verification information because if you're giving out uh, – and this is kind of what we're doing with the token. I can talk about that. But if you're giving out free money to people, you need to have some gate uh, in front of that, and that could be you know, computation, which is the gate that Satoshi put in front of it. Mm-hmm. It could be capital, which is the gate that the Ethereum initial Ethereum ICO and other ICOs have put in front of it. You need to invest capital to get these tokens. And we put – Labor and verification as that gate. You have to come to the twenty.co token site or the socialtoken.com site. You have to sign up, get verified. You have to do labor to get these tokens. And um, so that's a gate that we've got. And in order to prevent people from signing up with 100 accounts and getting the tokens that way, we um, do require verification. You know, we do require your state assigned real name. We do require your photo, all this type of stuff. So you might say, oh, well, isn't that hypocritical if you think, you know, that this is where the future is going to be? Well, no, because as I said, I'm willing to compromise. And in return for you, you know, using this as a transitional state, putting in your real name and all this other stuff, we know you're not going to be abusive. And uh, so you can get this digital currency, you can get onboarded. And then, of course, you can go and shapeshift that into Zcash and then you're on your way. You had this uh, this tweet storm, uh, you know, a while ago. Yep. Is the goal to solve problems or to try to solve problems? Uh, healthcare versus life extension, higher ed versus direct brain machine interface. Yep. How does that relate to the idea of like a transitional state till the end state? Well, yeah. Like, you know, for example, what is the purpose of healthcare? If you argue it is, you know, life extension, indefinite life extension, um, that's actually, you know, arguably solving the problem um, in the sense of everything else is just prolonging death. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you know, uh, that, that, that's not usually how people think about it. Like, okay, you'll die a year later. Yeah. We've got a great healthcare system, you know, so are you actually punching through or actually trying to solve the problem? Another example is like education. You know, if you think of it as what is the ideal education? The ideal education is um, like the scene from The Matrix in 99 where Keanu Reeves has all the information downloaded into his right. brain. And he just opens his eyes and like, I know karate, right? <laughs> right. That's the ideal education where you can just, you know, flick a button and the software's installed, the mental software's installed into your head. And now you know Japanese, you know karate, whatever, right? And so uh, if you think about what, like, a problem solution would look like versus our current very inefficient means of getting there, it's kind of the difference between, you know, a handcrafted wooden chair, which is cute, versus, you know, mass production automation of, you know, thousands, millions of chairs, which can be done at very low cost and very high consistency and, and so on, right? And so that's the kind of thing I, I like to think about. Talk more about what you're doing with the the token, because I think it sort of maps your sort of philosophical belief that it's easier for people to believe things are true when they're economically incentivized to do so, which I think is an Upton Sinclair idea as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think Upton Sinclair phrased it as it's very difficult for a man to understand something when his livelihood depends upon not understanding it. Right. right? Yep. Um, and I think that's absolutely true. And in fact, it's a very small, very small class of people who can believe something is true, even if it's economically disadvantageous for them in the short run uh, to accept that truth. Um, now, those folks are very precious folks, and if you know them, you should, you know, hopefully they're also reasonable um, right. <laughs> and you know nice people or whatever. Yeah. But they kind of, you know, and the reason I, I add that caveat is 
um, if you're willing to believe things that are very unconventional, often that correlates with a lot of other unconventionality, and often those people can be disagreeable personally. Um, but uh, for those who are, you know, uh, let's say iconoclastic in their thinking, but reasonable in their behavior towards others, uh, those are very valuable people because, um, you know, hopefully they can you know help drive society forward. They can think about things despite the social penalty for thinking about something that is currently unpopular. And, um, you know, the, the good thing about starts, great thing about technology is, you know, it's a, it's a vehicle for turning an unpopular thesis about the world into something that goes from, you know, 0.001% of people who believe in it to 0.1% and 1% and 30% and 50% and then right. 99%, right? Um, like, you know, how many folks have now, you know, used the internet? How many folks have used Google, have used Facebook, have used iPhone, have used Twitter, frankly, which seemed like an incredibly stupid idea when it, when it first started, right? Have used Bitcoin, you know, again, tens of millions. It's now, you know, like a pretty big deal. So, and it was mocked, still mocked. People still call it a Ponzi and a bubble and a scam yeah. and a fraud, right. et cetera. And so the thing about that is, um, you know, the economics aren't, it's not so much an end in its own right as it is a scoreboard that you can point to right. that everybody just kind of has to respect, right? Totally. You may not respect Bitcoin, but you have to respect $100 billion. That's right. that's something real. Your main goals with, with 21 is to make uh, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain and digital currencies a uh, sort of mainstream application, correct? Yeah, to, to mainstream digital currency, yes. I, uh, I want to understand more about what the future will look like uh, when that is mainstream. So I want to uh, name a sector and ask you to give me sort of a 30 second to a minute, just a picture or even one application uh, in that field where, where you think digital currencies will make a big splash. Sound good? Sure. Awesome. Uh, how about first, uh, we talked a little, about it a little bit, but uh, just media and journalism. I think prediction markets will be a very big thing here because um, one of the biggest problems that we have now, uh, so Twitter is a great example of this, is um, you have you know these tribes uh, or filter bubbles and there's a strong disincentive for speaking a truth that your tribe uh, thinks of as unpopular. Right. And um, so because of that, there's actually an incentive to distort and to amplify those things that cause embarrassment for the other you know, group and to kind of you know, just pass over and silence those things that cause embarrassment for one's own group, um, even if the search hampers the capital bystanders' um, you know, apprehension of reality. And so, you know, the, the way that you get an incentive for truth is, frankly, to introduce incentives. There have been these great experiments by behavioral economists um, where uh, partisanship gets reduced by the introduction of an incentive. So uh, if you've got, uh, you know, Republicans and you ask them a, a question that's going to produce a predictable Republican response or Democrats and they get a question that will produce a predictable partisan Democrat response and you give them, uh, like, you know, a dollar or $10 if they get the, let's say, the, the neutral response or what have you, you tell them up front, okay, um, if you get the right answer, then you get 10 bucks. Their behavior suddenly changes, and rather than just saying, oh, yeah, the WMDs were found in Iraq or whatever, they say, well, actually, you know, maybe not, right? You don't, it, it's basically, you don't tell them what the right answer is. You just say, hey, I'll give you 10 bucks if you get the answer that you know, is probably technically accurate and has the most factual backing behind it. So um, you know, another example of that is that uh, you know, people may – have various kinds of, you know, religious beliefs or what have you. But, you know, when it comes to fly a plane, um, they're going to be trusting in, you know, uh, aerospace engineering and, and whatnot, right? They're, they're not going to be too out there in terms of what they think about it. There's actually scientific ground truth. Uh, so and it's because they have an incentive to stay alive, right? Yeah. You know, on the ground, though, financial incentives, I think micro incentives or even macro incentives uh, to get something true rather than popular uh, prediction markets could, uh, with digital currency, give a micro incentive for people to accurately gauge what happened versus what was reported. Uh, and I think that would be a very big deal if, if tens of millions of people had digital currency and could start wagering on, is this article true or not? Did this fact actually happen? One criticism of micropayments broadly has been that people feel it's too cognitively intensive for people to think about, oh my God, am I paying a set here? Right. Set here? Uh, is that criticism just unfounded? So I think there's definitely something to that. Uh, but I, I also think that that can be overcome. Example, you know, with iTunes uh, and, uh, you know, the App Store, uh, Apple has basically solved the cognitive overhead of, you know, micropayments by just storing your credit card and making it as easy as possible. Just click a button, have Touch ID, and then you'll pay, right? And you just pay a lot more because it's actually not that much of an overhead. 
Um, that's not really, really micro. That's not like one cent in fractions of a cent, but that's that's definitely something. And I think uh, another big step is if you are just, you know, you have machines or you have um, yourself and you're passively earning digital currency all the time, then you may just not care about it that much. In kind of the same way that um, you don't care too much about the storage on your computer, except if you run out. Um, if your computer keeps replenishing digital currency because it's, let's say it's renting out storage via, you know, the Filecoin network, or it's, uh, you know, um, routing things via Mysterium for, for VPN, it's earning digital currency. So then, you know, yeah, okay, maybe it's also spending digital currency to buy things, but you'll only really notice if the outflow is greater than the inflow, and then you could top it up in other ways, right? Yeah. So that, that's at least two ways in which you can reduce mental transaction costs. Uh, the first is with uh, stored information, the way that like iTunes is doing it. And the second is, if your computer or if you are just casually earning digital currency all the time, then you're more free with just letting it happen. And you don't really need to account for it too much. How does healthcare change in a world of digital currencies mainstream? I d- definitely don't think that's like something that's going to be changed by it in the next year. Probably not within five, maybe within on the order of 10, maybe five to 10 at the very earliest. Uh, because you need to have big, you know, production success stories, totally scaled out, totally accepted, yep. you know, et cetera, with just the pure technology itself before you start doing, you know, one bleeding edge te- technology plus another, right? So like blockchain plus, let's say, genomic is just, you know, two bridges too far. You know what I mean? Each of those has to kind of work on its own. With that said, much of that area is, um, so, you know, the data there, whether it's medical records or whether it's uh, genomics data or it's quantified self data, et cetera, uh, it's medical so it's private but it's statistical so it requires uh, aggregation and so there's a contradiction there between something that's private and that requires aggregation to understand so how do you do private aggregations and uh, one possible way you could do that is if you had data local computing where people had you know the canonical copy of their data their quantified self-measurements or their genome sequence or medical records and they had it locally but uh you know they could rent out access to it um, for digital currency, so they gave out consent, and they got a cut in return for renting out access. And uh, something like that, you know, there's, there's a bunch of things they're trying to get now, um, uh, you know, token-based models. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that I think, um, you know, crypto would do, is it would give incentives for people to share previously private, you know, confidential. What about uh, finance? Is uh, is Wall Street, as we know it, gone within the next five to ten years, or totally, you know? Well, I mean, uh, so I had a quote on CNBC where basically, you know, Subject to the evolution of regulations, it's not going to be an immediate overnight thing. You know, the, the regulatory framework will need to accommodate it. There's going to be you know, some work on that front. Subject to that important proviso, um, yeah, the Internet does become the world's biggest stock market uh, in the sense that, you know, some kid in Mongolia can go and take 10 bucks worth of their local currency and, you know, buy some Ethereum or an ICO or, or what have you, right? And, uh, and, you know, if they're good, they can become the next Warren Buffett. And that's really awesome because, um, you know, with the internet, we've been able to pluck all this programming talent and all of this writing talent out of nowhere and start plucking investing talent. And folks from the middle of nowhere can, you know, if they're smart and they're risk tolerant, they can actually get rich, uh, which is awesome. I think that's like, you know, a huge next step. Um, and in addition to that, of course, like many, 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 many business models and files are just predicated on being, you know, Basically, the the gatekeepers or the or the toll keepers, right? The the trolls on the bridge, which take a fee every time you pass by, um, but they don't really, arguably, add that much value in the internet age. Just that they have certain licenses or certain, you know, like legacy kinds of deals. And now that you can route around them, this completely new payment rail of the blockchain. Well, wow, you know, it's it's not obvious why they continue to exist. Uh, and uh, I met a bunch of guys at, you know, Visa, MasterCard, and, and you know, places like Western Union back in 2013, and the far ones could see all the writing on the wall. And uh, they just, you know, I said, you know, they said, what do I do? And I said, well, you know, if you're a family man or a family woman, you know, and you've got a job there and so on, you know, what you might consider doing is just diversifying and putting some of that, you know, the cash flow that you have into digital currency. You can kind of eat your cake and have it too. You have your current job. If the thing goes up, then, you know, you protected yourself, and if it goes down, then no problem, you've got your current job. And they did that, and the, a lot of folks thanked me. Um, so, you know, whatever, like, <laughs> you know, I'm not giving I'm not giving any investment advice yeah. here, but, you know, just like I said, if you want to do that, that's one possible strategy, you know. Um, so, but yeah, I think, I think that with uh, finance, every single aspect of finance is going to be taken apart by blockchain and, and reconstituted, and many of the business models that currently exist won't, will not be feasible. But it's not a one-year thing, it's not a two-year thing, it's a multi-year thing. Um, uh, probably the closest analogy would be 
you know, what the internet did to, you know, newspapers and media and so on, the blockchain is going to do to finance. It's not going to end it. I mean, NYT and Wall Street Journal and yeah. so on, they're still around. I, I believe that, you know, Goldman and Morgan and Citi and Wells Fargo are going to be around for a while. Um, but, you know, the New York Times as an informational institution is not as significant as Google. How about venture capital? Do you think it's similar where like Sequoia and Dreesen and the best are still around, but the majority are gone? Well, you know, so the rise of angels, incubators, and so on, did not lead to the demise of VC. Right. You know, so so I don't think like you know it's, it's going to die overnight or anything like that. And I think the best VCs have been thinking about this area and planning for this since since 2013, um, and and some even earlier. Uh, actually, Calacanis, uh, you know, I got to say wrote one of the first and best essays on cryptocurrency in early 2011, one of the wow. very, very, very first in the space to really get it. Um, and so, you know, the, the smartest folks have been thinking about this for a while. So it's not like 2017 is some, you know, incredible uh, change for us. It's uh, it's more of a vindication of things we've already been thinking about. Like we've talked to LPs and, you know, LPs understand that, uh, that crypto is a big thing. And so I think like the smartest VCs will definitely be able to adapt. But um, it will definitely change certain things for example like proprietary deal flow becomes less and less of a thing if you know everybody on the internet can can buy your you know a digital currency right and uh you know value add has to become really real because if you can raise a million dollars online from people well then you know the guy saying okay i'm gonna get a million dollars and be very helpful well you can now actually truly calibrate that right right uh, in many cases the most successful icos or or cryptos have you know, top VPs and folks from the, you know, previous institutions associated with them. I remember we sat down, you know, almost a year ago at this point, and I was telling you that uh, that we were raising a fund, uh, and you uh, sort of, you know, deadpan said, you know, put it all on ICOs. I'm just curious, like, do you still feel that way in terms of from an investing lens? Yeah. So, and I want to stress, I'm not giving out any investment course, advice, but had you done what I kind of half joked about yeah, yeah. last year, you would have yeah. done pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You still feel the um, same way? Well, I mean, you know, so, so to be very clear, like, you know, there's obviously a lot of ICOs out there and a yeah. lot of coins and a lot of tokens and token madness and, and whatnot. Um, I definitely wouldn't say, like, everything out there is good or buy everything or anything like that. Um, I'm a relatively conservative crypto investor and it sounds paradoxical, but, you know, um, I look for things that actually have, uh, you know, very strong teams and technology. And so, you know, things I like. So obviously Bitcoin, Ethereum, Zcash, Tezos, Filecoin. Uh, you know, Brave and, and Civic and, you know, a few others that are, are at that level where uh, I think, you know, I, I know the folks, I, I respect the teams, I think they're smart, they're hardworking. They may or may not be successful, but they actually have a shot that they're definitely not scams or anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. And I also think that, you know, what we're doing is a, is a new take on it, but you don't have to risk any capital. You can just go and sign up and get tokens, and that's yet another take on it, right? right. Any any new technology, there's um, often a, you know, Gartner Hype Cycle-like surge into it. Bitcoin and blockchain has been through like three or four of these, and right. uh, there's a bunch of folks who get excited about it, and that's good because it pulls people in. I mean, the projects end up not being successful, but fine, because uh, the capital and energy tension that came into it keeps people, and then they just, you know, pursue, and, and, and it's good, right? Yeah. And so, like, you know, for the dot-com bubble, yes, we had lots of failures. We had WebN, but we got Amazon, and right. we had Pets.com, but we got Google. Yeah. So, you know, and one Google one annual revenue is more than all the, you know, dot-com VC investments put together. It's definitely paid for itself in that very macro sense. I'm curious. I mean, you're such a, you know, a champion for digital currencies. What, uh, what would need to be true for you to change your mind? Well, uh, if quantum cryptography got better the attack. So quantum decryption is probably the biggest threat I could see. I know that sounds like kind of out of left field, yeah. but essentially the security of cryptocurrencies is based on the idea that hashing is, is difficult to say, like it's difficult to invert a hash function. And that's, that's a whole premise of it. If, you know, it turned out that, um, you know, quantum cryptography and quantum decryption advanced uh, faster than quantum encryption, or if only a few state-based actors had access to quantum decryption first and they could, you know, decrypt, you know, accounts on the blockchain and they could just move money around and, and so on and so forth, then basically I would consider digital currency to have serious problems until quantum encryption became widespread, if ever, right? Um, so that's probably the single biggest wild card, I would say, on the horizon right now. I'm curious if – I'll frame the question by, uh, by using an analogy – if Peter Thiel, uh, if Utopia for, for Thiel is something like, you know, just heavy technological progress, you know, think, uh, you know, 
curing all diseases, radical life extension, if that's utopia for him, what does utopia look like for you uh, in a world where digital currencies are mainstream? Like, what are the most exciting uh, implications of that? Yeah, so I, I agree with a lot of those things. I, I support, you know, I'm not against curing all diseases and, you know, right. robotics and radical life extension especially. Um, I would add to that that I'm, I'm very interested, at least, in global equality of opportunity and, uh, you know, developers of the developing world and trying to, you know, get all these billions of people who were basically left out of economic growth in the 20th century because, you know, India was socialist and China was actually communist and Russia was communist and Eastern Europe was communist and Vietnam was communist and, you know, Iran was, you know, mired in religious fundamentalism and, and so on and so forth. All these places outside of the U.S. and Western Europe were just mired economically. And it's very important uh, to me and something I think about a lot is how do we get the really smart, hardworking, you know, brilliant people um, into the global economy and, um, you know, distribute in a, in a real sense the future to them as well. Uh, so, so, you know, I'd add, you know, yes, take all the stuff that Peter's got, then figure out how we can um, bring these folks in there and have like a, a use technology as vehicle, right. not for redistribution in the typical sense, not taking wealth from one person and giving it to another, not a zero-sum kind of game, mm -hmm. but a positive-sum game where we can bring these folks in and, and everybody can benefit. Yeah, it segues into, uh, let's talk about how, crypt, uh, how digital currency is going to change sort of politics and government. You know, uh, I think the thesis of the sovereign individual is a really, really good one. You know, the sovereign individual thesis is that, you know, we are at the transition of an age where in the Middle Ages, during the transition from, you know, the church to the state, like, you know, there's a period where the Catholic Church was just, so predominant in everything and everything was about you know the feast days and you know either the end power and the tithes to the church and indulgences and 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 everything was determined in terms of you know, religious ritual and and so on and that's kind of where we are today with politics where just because of the way that voting works and, and whatnot everybody's forced to basically buy all of their policies in, in one or, or two helpings it's kind of like Imagine if with food, there are two stores you could go to, you know, choice number one is you could buy the menu and menu number one was Coca-Cola plus hot dogs plus, uh, you know, ice cream plus, you know, lettuce plus whatever. And menu number two was Pepsi plus, uh, you know, chicken plus whatever, right? Yeah. Those are the only choices. And if you like ate some food that was kind of from the other person's menu, then some of the folks, if you, if you ate too many of those choices, some of the folks from the first group would yell at you and scream at you. Right. And that's kind of what, you know, politics is today is because of how, you know, like American first past the post works and, you know, just the nature of, of the state itself uh, it forces people into these sort of artificial tribes where gun rights and abortion rights and tax rights and all this type of stuff just gets piled up on, on top of each other. And instead, uh, you know, the thing that I think about a lot is, okay, leave that system intact. Do not try to change or reform it or, or what have you. There's lots of folks that are working on that. Let them work. Fine. Instead, let's look for different kinds of things. And one of the things I think a lot about is um, migration as a complement to election. Mm -hmm. um, and one way of thinking about this is, you know, yes, the United States is a nation of immigrants, IMM. I-G-R-A-N-T-S, but it's also a nation of immigrants, E-M-I-G-R-A-N-T-S. And right? because tautologically, every immigrant is an immigrant. They're emigrating from somewhere. And I think if you take that perspective, that's a very different take on the U.S., where all these folks who are here, modulo, of course, the Native Americans and you know many African Americans, modulo that, uh, many of the folks who are here are here by choice. Certainly, you know, the folks starting in the late 1800s, if you say you're a nation of immigrants, then you know, many of those folks came here by choice. And they came here, you know, for a better economic life, but that means in part that the life at home wasn't as great. And so uh, what is really interesting is due to search engines and due to social networks and due to mobile and due to digital currency, it's going to be more and more and more feasible to just relocate and have the same standard of living that you did in your previous location um, because mobile is making us more mobile. It's becoming cheaper and cheaper to change your XY location. Right. Right. And so because law is a function of latitude and longitude, because law is a function of your X and Y location in the sense that you've got local and then state and then federal laws. And as you change your X and Y, you change those kind of map overlays. If it's becoming cheaper to change your location, to change your X and Y, and if law is a function of your X and Y, it's becoming cheaper to change the law under which you live by migrating. And I think that's like a completely new way of thinking about, 
okay, how do I change the law under which I live? Option one, migration, or rather option one, election, option two, migration. Both legitimate options, unless you're saying immigration is illegitimate, which I don't think people... But the second one is a very new kind of filter because it can happen outside an election cycle. It can happen as an individual. And frankly, it can happen without making such a huge fuss about it and yelling at your neighbor and so on and so forth. You can just go and do it. You know, you don't go and have to yell at your neighbor and enter into a coalition with him or her, determine whether you're going to buy Pepsi today or what have you. You satisfy your preferences, they satisfy theirs, and, you know, everybody goes about their business, right? I think that starts to get interesting where you start to have more and more realms of life that are outside of politics and outside of this kind of tribal behavior. Right. But so we have the technology to do this, right? What's going to make that a mainstream behavior? I think it's one of those ideas whose time come. I think digital currency uh, may be one of the last pieces. If we're successful with what we're doing, we'll get millions of people exposed not just to digital currency, but from the idea of earning money from anywhere. It's still not yet at the point where I can move to a new city open up, you know, an app, scroll through, hit buttons, and make money. Um, it's getting there. You know, there's there's various kinds of, you know, services. I, I think, uh, you know, it's Upwork and so on and so forth. But it's not yet, like, extremely uh, deterministic. It's like, you know, if you're an Uber driver, you can just go to a new city, open up the app, and just immediately start getting rides, right? Like, the job is there for you. Higher skilled work has not yet gotten there. But I think once it does, uh, that will radically reduce the barrier to exit. Somewhere related politics, government made you had this uh, you know tweet storm about it not being about sort of left and right anymore, but more about you know, sort of national globalism, and we sort of have echoes of that on a smaller scale with like you know what Steve Bannon represents, you know national side, and maybe what like Jared Kushner or Gary Cohen represents on the globalist side. <laughs> but you're talking you know like on another level of distraction, sort of cloud versus land. Explain this theory more. Sure, sure, sure. You know, yeah, there, there's some talk about like nationals versus globalists and so on, and, and Bannon and, and Kushner and, and whatnot. The distinction is between those people who are fundamentally willing to emigrate, willing to move, not that concerned about the physical environment around them, you know, mostly live on their laptop, mostly live, you know, with their friends in a social network, you know, as long as the city that they're living in has basic amenities and, you know, it's got a gym and, uh, you know, it's not, you know, super high crime or what have you, are pretty much, you know, comfortable with any place in the world, right? Uh, and that actually describes a lot of people who are knowledge workers or people in tech. If, you know, you derive satisfaction from, you know, intellectual pursuits and books and games and, you know, online stuff, you know, that's, you know, that's a good chunk of people. Now, obviously, if you love, you know, the Louvre or, you know, you really like, you must be near some certain lake or some physical, you know, feature, that doesn't describe you, right? But I think a larger and larger percentage of people basically are spending more and more time online. The more time they're spending online, the less relevant the physical location around them becomes. And I'd say within five years or so, you know, people, you know, listening to this podcast might think, okay, how much time do you spend looking at a screen? And so a laptop and a mobile phone and a tablet. And for many folks I talk to, that's north of 50% of their waking hours. But in about five-ish years, probably 50% of your waking hours are going to be spent with a VR headset on. So most of your remaining life will be spent, your waking hours will be spent in the matrix. And then like where you lived at doesn't matter as much right mm-hmm. so because of that if you know the, the spot that you live doesn't matter as much then you become much more flexible in it and that means that the land has less bargaining power uh because it doesn't have as much offer since you know here or thailand or vietnam or you know south korea or you know brazil whatever as long as that sector has a pretty good internet connection and pretty good food and, and whatnot there's a much, much, much wider set of nice places to live. That's very different than even 25 years ago because, you know, the world was just coming out of the Cold War and, you know, you had, you know, China and India were much, much poorer than they are today and Russia and Eastern Europe were way, way, way poorer. And so, like, the rest of the world has really grown up very fast and it's been underreported in, in, you know, I would say Western media. And uh, now that they've got telephones and, you know, cell phones and, and satellite, internet and whatnot, they're, they're more livable. It's a huge factor that is reducing the bargaining power of the land relative to these folks who I call the cloud, which are the transnational, you know, programmer, you know, capitalist types. You know, I don't want to uh, oversimplify, but sort of implicit in that in that belief is sort of a belief that uh, lack of regulation and uh, decentralization leads to more sort of progress and innovation. So how do you think of China in this theory? Very good question. And, you know, I'd say that um, any classification scheme is going to have, uh, you know, it's, 
for a better term, contradictions or, you know, there's thesis plus antithesis and you get synthesis, right? And China, yes, absolutely a very, you know, state-run economy in many ways. Um, in other ways, it's just much less regulated than the United States. Uh, and so some examples of that, if um, if you go and look at uh, the buildings that they've built on YouTube, or rather they didn't build on YouTube, but they, they put videos on YouTube, of, you know, 30 days or, or 14 days they built story skyscraper. If you Google videos like that, you'll see construction technologies that you could not use in the United States. You know, they, they basically went and prefabbed all of this material in entire sides and, you know, girders and everything of the building. And they just bring up the cranes and they literally work 24 hours a day uh, to assemble it. And uh, the whole thing built in like, you know, two, three weeks. And you compare that to the base of building in, in San Francisco where Fort Street has been dug up for, I think, a year. I don't even know. And there's no construction that I can see, or typically, most times, when one walks past. So, like, the most trafficked intersection in the city has been dug up for a year. Nothing's happening. So, you know, the Chinese can build a building in, you know, two weeks. And, you know, the folks there are crude. You know, people say, oh, well, it's communism, and they're press-ganging them, and, and so on. You know, they're, they're state-controlled, and, you know free but those folks are capitalists who are doing that those those folks are not they don't have a gun to their head you can look at the videos they're they're basically you know very sophisticated construction workers and that gives a sense of what is held back by bad regulation so in china that's you know two or three weeks in the u.s that equivalent building would take three years there's a very non-linear impact on housing costs because if you're the landlord or the person building it well, you in the U.S. you have to swallow three years where you can't even occupy the building, which is you know tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Which means that when people do occupy the building, it jacks up the price quite a bit. Versus if you can build it in like three weeks, wow, you can just nominally cut the cost and pile it into your growth rate and build ten more buildings like that. On some dimensions, the Chinese are actually much less regulated, and uh, so in, in that sense, uh, you know, I think they do have innovation in areas that we could we could learn from. But uh, but obviously in other areas they're they're more controlled and so you know for example a recent crackdown on digital currency is very unfortunate that is that you know what I'd like to see is a diversity of regulatory environments around the planet with different kinds of jurisdictions having different kinds of rules that suit them they're compatible with their culture uh, and yet are also something that attracts you know foreign capital and entrepreneurs and jobs and what have you. A drone zones and self-driving car zones and construction zones and this zone and that zone. Yuval Harari, the you know author of Sapiens and Homo Deus, has uh, sort of talked about or coined this term called the useless class, which are effectively uh, the people that will get displaced because of you know advancements in artificial intelligence. So, one, do you agree with that premise that a lot of jobs are going to get lost? That the fifty-year-old trucker is going to have a tough time uh, finding a new job uh, in sort of new world, and we're going to hold class of citizens that don't have work to do. So, uh, I. I do, but I also believe that AI will create a new working class. And the reason I think so is that um, in order to power AI, you need training data. And um, I think that the new assembly line is going to be people doing basically recapture-type tasks for digital currency. Any new algorithm that's going to be trained for a long, long time is going to need enormous amount of human training data. Is this an A? Is this a B? Is this a C? That kind of thing. Um, is this a cat? Is this a dog? And so to get millions and millions and millions of data points of very high quality, you're going to have humans doing it. And it's very similar to an assembly line, except the awesome part is you can do it on your phone and you can do it on the go. We, uh, we talked about what utopia looks like to you. I want to talk about what uh, dystopia looks like. What do you think is, is most worrisome? That's interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks who spend a lot of time thinking about apocalypse. And, uh, you know, there's some that you didn't list there, which are like financial apocalypse, right? Um, where, uh, you know, the U.S. debt and the euro and so on, all of that stuff blows up. And on that list, that's an extremely likely near-term one that we're going to have another financial crisis. Uh, I'm not sure if it's next year or like five years from now or something like that, but um, you know, probably it's not going to be like 20 years from now. It's not going to, it's not going to take that as long. As bad as 2008? It's going to be worse. Um, and uh, the reason I think it's going to be worse is – because none of the problems for 2008 were really actually solved. They just kind of papered over them with, with quantitative easing. You know, Jan Yellen recently made a remark saying that, you know, hey, we'll never have another financial crisis again. And it was very similar, I think, to Ben Bernanke's in 2007 about the so-called great moderation, where he, you know, he said, okay, you know, like, um, we've tamed the business cycle and, you know, it's all, it's all done, right? And that was, you know, kind of not the case. He's like, he basically almost exactly said something like, we're never going to have something like the Great Depression again. Right. Okay. And then like basically right at that time, the mortgage crisis was about to kick off. So, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of possible failure modes. 
I think the financial crisis stuff is probably the most probable. There, there's sites like Zero Hedge that have called 200 of the last two financial crises, if, if you're familiar with those, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so that that's one that I think is probably the most likely, you know, kind of near-term thing. Some of the other ones, like, you know, robots or gray goo, you know, or uh, like, you know, possibly a nuclear war of some kind. Uh, you know, the nuclear war thing I'm actually not as concerned about because... Um, Even in our current not, politics. What's that? Even in our current politics. You read Twitter? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, the reason I'm not is because it's far fewer bombs than the U.S. and the USSR had planted against each other. So, uh, unfortunately, San Francisco is a place that uh, Kim Jong-il has in his, or Kim Jong-un has in his uh, simulated, I don't know if you saw that, it was, on, it was on the news like a few months ago. They put a video out of all the you know North Korean generals clapping. The video that they showed was of San Francisco getting, right? Okay, great. Yeah. Um, I think they like zoomed in on my apartment, basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> be that as it may, as horrible as nuclear exchange would be, the norm of nuclear attacks being eroded and so on and so forth, uh, you know, North Korea does not have enough bombs to blow up the entire United States. Even terrorists, as destabilizing and bad as that would be to new, uh, you know, a single, you know, city, uh, it would not mean, you know, the end of civilization, which, you know, could have been like U.S. versus USSR during the war, right? Something else in the very long term, certainly not today, certainly not tomorrow, probably not 10 years, maybe more like, you know, 30 years, uh, that might happen is if you don't contiguous nation states in the same way anymore and maybe it's more like 50 years but you know or let's say nation states are less common and and by that what i mean is um like you know europe used to be like this kind of overlapping set of principalities where it was very hard to draw lines you know and it was more like a social network than it was you know like like clear-cut geographically defined nation states in that kind of environment nuclear weapons become less and less useful to achieve a political objective because you'd nuke a bunch of your supporters along with a bunch of your enemies. Right. As an example, actually, that we can more relate to in the modern-day U.S., you know, Democrats and Republicans, if you look at a map in the U.S., um, yes, there's, you know, Democrats are concentrated in, in cities and Republicans are in the plains, but it's very well mixed, and it's hard to find areas that have just 100% of one and 100% of another. So I think it'd be unlikely that even as polarized as our politics are, for one to nuke the other, well, it's too fractal, Right. And so that spreading and so on makes it harder to nuke each other. So I, I'm less concerned about, you know, run nuclear war. So, it, like, I mean, at least that one is um, – it's, it's bad, but it sounds bad as it was in the 20th century. Regarding the other ones, some of them are very, very far future. Like, yep. you know, nanotech doesn't even really work yet. So Greku, yeah, I mean, it's possible. Sure, right. it is. But, um, you know, this is the Greku problem for viewers who haven't heard of it. Like, you get your nanotech and uh, your machines and they kind of – you know, are stupid and they've got a bug in them and they just turn everything they touch into gray goo and everything just, you know, and they replicate and everything becomes gray goo. Yep, it's possible uh, to happen, but we're not really that close to it. Robots killing humans, um, to some extent, uh, that one is definitely going to happen um, in the sense that there's just too much of a, there's too much investment in autonomous robots and, and you know, drones and so on. Uh, it's probably already happened in some sense where, you know, like a, a drone targeting system says, hey, so-and-so is a terrorist and yeah. someone pushed the button and, and they got killed. Um, like a true Terminator-like scenario, I think we need a lot of breakthroughs in AI before that happens. And so I don't think of that as like a next, you know, one-year or five-year kind of thing. Even though AI is advancing rapidly, it's not yet at that point that I think it's like, you know, well, let's worry about it. And then the counter-argument from a lot of these folks is, well, by the time it gets to that point, then you can't worry about it. It's already gone too far. But I guess I'm just generally a pro-tech sort of person where many, many, many arguments against advancing technologies could have been given. You know, should we not have done chemistry because, you know, we got sarin gas and should we not have done physics because we had nuclear bombs? Maybe, you know, we've managed to struggle through so far and I don't think it's possible to stop the future, so we just need to moderate it. You sort of, how do you think about sort of what should and shouldn't be decentralized and not just from like, you know, a technical standpoint, but also from like institution standpoint, from a social standpoint? How, how, do, you, how do you think about that? Decentralization is really hard and it's really costly. Uh, it slows things down. Um, it has lots and lots of uh, downsides. But the huge upsides of it are uh, it unlocks a bunch of incentives. Once people know that something can't be taken from them, they're much more likely to work hard. Uh, and so that's you know, a consequence of censorship. Uh, it's also uh, seizure resistance, right? You can't see somebody's assets if, if possession is decentralized. I would say what should be decentralized, we should have decentralized alternatives to almost every major web service and yeah. web technology. So we should have a decentralized DNS and we should have a decentralized BGP if we can figure it out. 
and we should have decentralized versions of Facebook and, and Twitter and so on. Uh, and, uh, you know, all, all those kinds of things I, I do believe we will eventually get, but uh, they will require many different kinds of models to make them work. And uh, it may turn out that hybrid models that are partially centralized and partially decentralized are the easiest ones to get to work. And that's, you know, part of our thesis, and we'll see if, that, if that's true. And then uh, over time, if the inefficiencies of decentralization are outcompeted by the fact that the gains from them are the incentives that people have to, to promote them. I mean, how many people are out there and, you know, advocating for PayPal, right? It, it, because it's, you know, a centralized kind of thing, there could only be so many stakeholders in it. Mm-hmm. And compare that to the entire global Bitcoin community. It's just, you know, not even comparable, right? So even though, you know, yes, today Bitcoin has a lower TPS than, than PayPal. And by the way, there's new stuff on the way, like, you know, Plasma, you know, and Ethereum that, that could really increase transaction velocity. Even though, yes, it's got a lower TPS, and it's poorer in some regards from a technological standpoint in the sense that it doesn't have the same transaction throughput. It's better in other regards from a technological standpoint because it's got uh, unfreezability and other kinds of things. So even if it's got some disadvantages, some advantages, one of the biggest advantages is it's got a huge cheerleading base. Right. And that may be enough to say, well, yeah, decentralize a lot of things. Um, now, what to not decentralize, you know, what should you not decentralize? something that's not going to benefit from it uh, and uh, we're going to see what kinds of things those are. It's just, it's just harder to do it. So I wouldn't say decentralize unless you have a good thesis on how you're going to get that crowd around it and, and get people working with it. And so expanding out for a sec, we've sort of, we've been wired as, as humans to have the same, you know, live in the same place, have the same sort of 10 or 50 or 150 or whatever it is sort of, you know, community, like we yep. have religion, we have a set identity. How do, how does sort of meaning or sense of meaning change um, in this new world, you know, and related, how does the concept of religion change? Like, what, what are your thoughts on on that? Because it's sort of radically different from from what we've been doing up to up to now. I'd say there are, however, you know, human groups like you know what Stalin called uh, in a negative way the rootless cosmopolitans. Right. Uh, there have been human groups who have been migrants, right? You know, there's the Jewish diaspora and the Indian diaspora and the Chinese diaspora and the English diaspora and so on. That I mean, folks who you know cultures have been ocean-going, seafaring, mercantile, or migratory, who are well-adapted, I would say, to this kind of new world, that they aren't as rooted to a place, they are willing to snap laptops shut and flip suitcases open. And uh, I think that kind of person will, will do well in this, in this new world. I also think that, you know, you mentioned religion. In many ways, blockchain is sort of like a religion that works. And let me explain what I mean by that. So if you got, you know, 100,000 or a million people and you put them in a circle and you had them close their eyes and hope that a 747 would just get levitated off the ground, that's not going to happen. But if you have 100,000 or a million people and they close their eyes and they, like, say, okay, I believe this digital currency is valuable. Now, obviously, that has to have some basic security properties of the kinds of stuff that we have today, you know, where you can't seize the money and so on. There's actually scarcity that's enforced. But given that primitive, given blockchain that has those primitives, which are now well understood in 2017, well, these folks have just given the thing value. Even if the rest of the world thinks they're dumb, so long as they have engineers in the mix and, you know, doctors and dentists and other people who have tradable external skills, um, if that, you know, engineer, the outside world trades their software skills, and you know receives dollars and then uses dollars to convert into some internal currency that this network accepts and sends back and forth. The rest of the world has well, you, you know, you've just got a price on it. Fine, you know, you guys have internal currency. And what that is is actually similar to the process of like saying, okay, well, you know, this small country, you know, of uh, two million people has its own currency. Great, you know, when I come to the airport, I'll change into the dinar or whatever your you know local currency is, a rupee, and I'll transact there, right? And I'll just respect that kind of local sort of thing. And that's really interesting because it's kind of the next step up from how you take a startup and you turn a bunch of folks' belief that something can turn into something, right? You know, when you start a company, it's always kind of a delusion to think this line on a piece of paper, this name I just came up with, Product Hunter or what have you, right, uh, could become a big thing. Mm -hmm. And you have to sort of will it into existence. It has to be a shared delusion among people that creates value and that creates wealth and starts running morale. And we've got a mechanism for creating, turning morale into into value. And obviously there has to be technology there as well, but morale is very important. Uh, And now we've got something that scales it up, which turns morale into a larger form of wealth, which is the digital currency. So I think that's that's kind of how I think about it in the context of, you know, say, religion in our secular age. So what uh, what philosophers have most inspired you? Like what thinkers or authors have sort of are most influential for your worldview today? So uh, I wouldn't limit it to just philosophers. 
I like Richard Feynman's uh, writings, like uh, Srinivasa Ramanujan, the classical kind of books uh, I'm interested in. So, you know, Adam Smith, uh, Hobbes, Machiavelli, Chanakya, who's an Indian philosopher, a lot of Chinese history, um, so Confucius and Mencius. I've read a lot of history of, you know, the 20th century in particular. So what happened in Russia, what happened in China, what happened in India, what happened in Israel. Those are things that, you know, outside of the U.S. are just not really taught. American history, you kind of go, you get 1776, 1865, 1945, and then you're in the present. You don't really learn what, what goes on for us. I'm very interested in the history of socialism, history of communism, history of capitalism, those kinds of things. You know, obviously, you know, the famous mathematicians, uh, when people ask me to recommend a book, sometimes I'll recommend Sovereign Individual or Seeing Like a State, and sometimes I'll recommend my favorite book if I, if I uh, you know, have nothing to do. It's the Princeton Companion to Mathematics. And now they've actually got a new Princeton Command to Applied Mathematics. Wow. And uh, those books are just amazing because you really just need those to just learn all the math you'd ever want to learn. And you can just get almost arbitrarily deep with them. So those are the kinds of things that have been like, influential uh, to me. I could probably name more folks, but that gives a, a pretty good picture. Uh, cool. So I want to try an experiment where I want to name a few people who you are you know, very close with, work with, just see if there's a point of nuanced disagreement on anything uh, intellectually. Okay. One, uh, just because we brought him up, is there any nuanced disagreement uh, with uh, with Peter Thiel on anything or difference of opinion? Peter, I think I've probably been much more bullish on blockchain yep. and uh, much more skeptical about, you know, the prospects of the U.S. and the world. Um, so I think that's like maybe the most fundamental disagreement there. And I wouldn't overstate that, but I'd just say, you know, that's one thing. And then the second thing is I think a lot more about the developing world and you know, all potential of folks are seas. And that's, you know, that's something where, you know, I have personal experience with, with those folks there. So yep. I know there's a lot of talent there. And so I don't, I don't begrudge anybody for not thinking about that as much. Uh, how about Mark Andreessen? Is it the same answer? Mark is, Mark is more, much more bullish on Silicon Valley than I am, I think. Yep. And uh, I, I think certainly this is the center of technology today. But even four years ago, I could see that we, we were going to need to decentralize it. With the financing piece, everything else we push into the cloud, you know, you know, you've got Slack in the cloud and you've got Google Docs and you've got uh, AWS and you've got all these things where from an internet connection anywhere in the world, you can access them and you can run servers and you can take payments uh, now with digital currency. The last piece was, you know, the financing piece. And so now people do not need to come to Silicon Valley to get financing and they yeah. don't need to go to Wall Street to get their exit. So I think you're going to see a rapid decentralization of technology out of Silicon Valley for the last five to 10 years. Yeah. That may be, you know, the bit that, and again, I, I, when I say disagreement, this yeah. is like relatively mild.